<clears throat> you may have heard the adage, you win some and you lose some. Kids, that's what your parents tell you after you lost something, right? You rarely hear you win some and lose some after you won. What are they doing? They're trying to give you perspective on life. Sometimes we have victories and sometimes we have defeats. And if we have a little bit of perspective, that can help. My Braves lost the second year in a row to the Phillies, but there's always next year. But what if that loss is catastrophic? What if there is no human recovering from that loss that we experience? Win some, lose some doesn't help very much. We need something far better. The reason uh, this morning I, I want us to, uh, to, to take just a moment and review why is Hebrews 11 in the book of Hebrews? As we wrap up this hall of faith, why is this chapter even here? This catalog of the faith of God's people in the Old Testament. If you recall, the, the reason for the book, is, it, it, the epistle, is there were Jewish believers being addressed here that were suffering. They were experiencing various forms of oppression, of persecution. The, uh, the weight of the cross, they were called to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. And the weight of the cross was getting very heavy. And some were tempted even to turn back and revert to Judaism and abandon this new faith. And so the author of the book of Hebrews is writing this epistle to appeal to them to persevere. He says in chapter 6, 11 and 12, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's calling these Jewish believers and he's calling you and me as well to emulate the earnestness of these Old Testament saints, to emulate their faith and their patience, to persevere to the very end. And we read in verse 2 in chapter 11, when he defines faith, he says, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. So this is a call to persevere, a persevering in faith, in trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, not simply for initial salvation, absolutely that, but for every single day of our lives to trust him for the grace that we need for every challenge, every opportunity, every trial, every loss we may experience. As we just sang, not if you pass through the water or if you pass through the fire, when you pass through the water, I'll be with you. When you pass through the fire, you won't be burned because I am with you. I am the Lord your God. And he assures us that he is with us, and he simply calls us to believe him. Again, the definition of faith we find in verse 1, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the certainty of things not seen. It's confidence that God is faithful and he will fulfill his promises even when all appearances may suggest otherwise. And if you, if you go back and just review the, the chapter, you see that he begins looking at the faith of those before the patriarchs, Abel and Enoch and Noah. But then he takes us through the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then subsequent to that, the next section, he looks at the exodus, Moses, and Moses' parents who spared his life in defiance of Pharaoh's decree. 
and the children of Israel as they crossed over the Red Sea, as they observed the Passover, as they trusted the Lord under Joshua's leadership to see the walls of Jericho come down, and even the faith of Rahab, this citizen of Jericho, a prostitute, who placed her faith in the Lord and was spared, and even, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, included in the very genealogy of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as she was grafted into the people of God. So, this morning, uh, he, the, the writer has a very brief, just overview of the rest of Old Testament history. He says, we don't have time to cover it all. We don't have time to, to uh, dive into everything because he really wants to keep our focus on this one thing, the centrality of faith from the beginning to end for the people of God. So there are three points here. The title is Faith in Victory and in Defeat. So first of all, faith to conquer. But secondly, faith to endure suffering. And then finally, something better. And you'll see as we unpack this. So first of all, in verses 32 to 35, this faith to conquer. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. <clears throat> now, it's interesting to me, the writer writes and says, there's a whole lot more I could say, but I, I'm, I just don't have the time. And that is reassuring to me, right? I, I feel like, you know, there's always so much more I would wish I could say, but, but, but we would be here too long. But the Old Testament is full of these examples of men and women who by faith served the Lord and found Him faithful. And we could spend hours uh, exploring their, their, their stories, their exploits, and that would be a profitable use of our time, but I don't want to, He doesn't want to take us off from the main point, and I want us to keep us there as well. And so he keeps us back on this focus of what does faith do? And he gives us cursory mention of six heroes of the faith in the Old Testament of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. Now, up to this point, he tells us each hero, here is a specific way his faith was demonstrated. Now we just read their names, and then we see a larger explanation of the demonstrations of faith. But I, I, I want to just review quickly these six men that he mentions, because some of them are very familiar, obviously, David, Samuel, but some you may not be quite as familiar with them. Many of them are in the period of the judges uh, that took place within the first few hundred years after Israel settled in the Promised Land. So first of all, Gideon. You know the story of Gideon, right? Gideon led 300 soldiers into battle against 132,000 Midianites. And they conquered. By the, uh, by the grace of God, he gave them a stunning victory. But I want you to remember, when God first approached Gideon, he was not a man of great faith. He was actually hiding in a wine press from the Midianites. And when God said, I want you to go and serve and lead my people in the battle, he was afraid to trust God. He said, God, wait a minute. My family is a nobody family, and I'm the nobodyest in my nobody family. You couldn't pick a more insignificant person. And the Lord's like, we, I know, because I want the glory, not you. 
now go do this. And he's like, well, okay, okay, I get that you want me to do this, but can we just be sure? And so he says, Lord, just humor me here. I'm going to put this fleece in the wine press. And if tomorrow morning the fleece is wet with dew, but all, everything, the ground around it is dry, then I'll know that, that you really mean business. And the Lord's like, okay. And he accommodates his fear. Let me say this again. Laying out fleeces is not a show of great faith. Laying out fleeces is not a biblical way to discern the will of God. Gideon laid out a fleece because he wasn't sure it was really safe to trust God. And he was saying, God, are you sure? And in fact, God accommodated that. And, and Gideon said, uh, now please don't get angry with me, but, but one more time. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to put the fleece out one more time. And tomorrow morning, would you make all the ground around it wet and the fleece itself dry? And the Lord's like, okay. And he does that. And, and Gideon realizes, I guess I don't have anywhere to turn here. I, I ought to trust God after all and do what he says. He was afraid to believe the promise of God. Just let that sink in for a minute. God appeared to him visibly. The angel of the Lord spoke to him, and he was afraid to believe him. And yet, the Lord overcame that fear and gave him great faith. And Gideon did trust the Lord. He did lead 300 men into battle, and they won a stunning victory over the enemies. Now, it's interesting, the author of Hebrews doesn't record Gideon's fear, does he? He simply says, through faith, he's done this great thing. And then Barak. You may not be as familiar with Barak. He led an army before Gideon, a generation before Gideon, he led an army against Canaanite oppressors, against the commander Sisera. And the Canaanites have been oppressing the people of God for about 20 years. And at the time, Israel had a female judge named Deborah. She was ruling in Israel as a judge appointed by the Lord, and she comes, she calls Barak and says, God is commanding you, lead the armies out against Sisera and run these varmints off, basically. And, and again, Barak is afraid to do it. He says, I'm not going unless you go with us. And Deborah says, well, okay, but you don't get the glory for this. I will. So Barak is afraid to trust the Lord. And yet, the Lord accommodates that fear, gives him the faith he needs, and they rout the enemy. And again, Hebrews 11 doesn't mention his fear. It only mentions his faith. Samson. <clears throat> Samson's a very complicated character. Most of us know the stories of Samson uh, all too well. He was also a judge over Israel. And Samson <clears throat> was like the biblical equivalent of Superman. He was endowed with this superhuman strength that uh, the secret of his strength was in his, the long hair that he had, as a Nazarite vow that he had taken. And during his lifetime, Israel was being oppressed by the Philistines. And Samson, the, the Scriptures don't record him ever leading an army against the Philistines. Samson was a one-man wrecking crew, and he killed thousands of Philistines himself. But there was something that Samson could not conquer, and that was his own lust. And he had a particular uh, attraction to Philistine pagan women, and one in particular named Delilah. And when the Philistine rulers <clears throat> realized that, that Samson was uh, so enamored with Delilah, they convinced her to betray him and reveal the source of his strength. 
And he toyed with her for a while. I said, well, you know, you tie me up with seven new tie bonds. and uh, None of that worked. But he finally told her it was, it's, it's my hair. It's my long hair. So while he slept, she cut his hair. And when he woke up, he found that he was tied up in ropes and he could not break them. And this Philist, the Philistines came in and they gouged out his eyes. They put him in bonds and locked him away. And then one day, <clears throat> they said, let's bring Samson out for our entertainment. And this huge building, this huge house, 3,000 people were there to make fun of Samson. And the scriptures tell us that his hair had grown out by that time. So he'd been in captivity for quite some time. And he said, Lord, would you come uh, to me one more time? Would you give me power one more time to do this service for your glory? And the Lord gave him the power, and he was able to push down the two main pillars supporting that building, and 3,000 of God's enemies were killed that day. He won a great victory over his enemies. Again, Hebrews 11 doesn't talk about his immorality, his folly. But rather in the end, he did trust in God, and his faith here is celebrated. And the fourth person is Jephthah. Jephthah is a very interesting character because he was, uh, he was the son, an, an, uh, an illegitimate son of an Israelite. And he was rejected by his family because he was not born of their father's wife. He was born of a concubine. And so he was off marauding and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And then when Israel was oppressed, they realized this guy is really powerful. And so they went and they said, would you come be our leader? And he says, why do you want me? You've rejected me. And they said, no, no, we really want you. And so they convinced him to lead them and he devotes himself to the Lord and ask God, would you give me victory here? And in fact, he makes a vow to the Lord. He says, God, if you will give me this victory over your enemies, whatever comes out of my house to greet me, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will devote to you as a burnt offering. And the Lord gave him a great victory. And he went home, and the first thing out of his house was his only child, his daughter, rejoicing at this great victory God had given. And he said, I can't break my vow to the Lord. And so she went and spent two months mourning her, uh, her loss of all that life would hold for her. And then he fulfilled that vow tragically. But again, Hebrews 11 doesn't talk about that rash vow. It only mentions Jephthah's faith. David is a man after God's own heart. He was Israel's greatest king. The first demonstration in Scripture we see of his faith was when he went up against Goliath. All of Israel was terrified of Goliath, of the Philistines, the giant. And David trusted in the Lord and killed Goliath, and the Israelites were able to rout the Philistine army. David became Israel's greatest king. We would expect David's faith to be mentioned and celebrated in Hebrews 11. It is. But you recall that his reign was also marked by grievous sin when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed in order to cover up his sin. And that the, 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 the harvest, the consequences of that scandal brought great destruction on his family and on his, the rest of his reign. And yet, he trusted the Lord. And Hebrews 11 only mentions his faith. And then finally, Samuel. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. He was the, the judge and prophet who was the Lord told to anoint Saul to be king and then David to be king after that. Uh, he was faithful 
all his days. He served Israel well. He did have two sons that were not so faithful that he anointed as priests, I think rather foolishly. But again, that's not recorded, only his faith. And I want to read you his, part of his farewell address to Israel before the Lord took him home. He said, moreover, it's for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. That was the heart, and that was a testimony of Samuel. And along with Samuel, the author, mentions, the author mentions all the prophets in general, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, like uh, Elijah and Elisha and Daniel. <clears throat> Each one demonstrated great faith, whether it was carrying out exploits for the Lord or facing persecution and trial, and they were examples for us. They're part of that great cloud of witnesses we're to consider when we get to chapter 12, Lord willing, next week. But then we have verse 33 and 35 through 35, this list of their exploits of these and others of the Old Testament. They conquered kingdoms, and we see numerous of these men just mentioned, as well as others, were used of the Lord to conquer kingdoms, to enforce justice, which is what the judges did. They obtained promises, whether it was God promising Gideon, I will give you this great victory, or many others who believed the promises of God. And the evidence that they believed him is they obeyed him. Or they stopped the mouths of lions, and we think particularly of Daniel, who was thrown in the lion's den. Or they quenched the flames, the power of the fire. And we think of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego before Nebuchadnezzar, who would not bow down to that golden image. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and yet they were unsinged. <clears throat> they escaped the edge of the sword. And as we read the Old Testament, we see that that was true of both Elijah and Elisha who escaped threats to their lives. They were made strong out of weakness. Think of Samson. Think of Gideon. They put foreign armies to flight. They became mighty in war, as these we've looked at. And then also women received back their dead by resurrection. There are two accounts in the Old Testament to that fact. One was a Shunammite woman who whose son was, who died, and her son was raised by the prophet Elisha. But before that, a widow at Zarephath, whose son was raised by Elijah, the prophet. Two Gentile women whose sons were restored to them because of the faith of God's prophets. So the faith to overcome is celebrated here, and we're called to emulate that kind of faith. But trusting the Lord doesn't always guarantee us great victories. Sometimes faith and the Lord enables us to endure, persevere in the face of great loss or suffering. So faith, first of all, to conquer, but secondly, faith to endure suffering. Please read, uh, beginning in the middle of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life <clears throat> or receive a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in dens and mountains and in dens and caves, or excuse me, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. There were some who were tortured, and they refused to accept release. What, what does he mean here? Well, throughout the ages, Old Testament knew and since, martyrs have endured torture. They've endured persecution. 
And had they renounced their faith, they could have gone free, but they refused to be delivered at the cost of their spiritual integrity. They chose rather to live for the Lord and even die for the Lord, to suffer for him. And you ask the question, how could anyone endure such great loss, such great pain, such great affliction and humiliation? And the answer is, they were keenly aware there was a motivating factor here that they might rise to a better life, or literally that they might experience a more excellent resurrection. The word better here means more excellent. It appears, actually appears 10 times in the book of Hebrews. It's the theme of the book of Hebrews, the excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's, better than, he's a better priest than the old covenant priesthood. And because of the Lord Jesus, we have a better salvation. Chapter 6, verse 9 tells us that. We have a better hope. We have a better covenant, better promises. We have better and lasting possessions. In chapter 10, it says they, they, they even rejoiced at the plundering of their own property because they knew they had a better and lasting possession. Years ago, I saw the movie God's Outlaw. It was about the life of William Tyndall. William Tyndall lived in the early 1500s. He was a reformer who, <clears throat> his mission in life was to translate the 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 original manuscripts as, as much as they had, or the, 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 the autographs, the uh, Hebrew and Greek Old and New Testament into the English language. Now, to that point, the Roman Catholic Church uh, had decreed that only Latin was acceptable. Only the priests could read God's Word. But Tyndall was convinced that everyone, every believer should have access to the Word of God in their own language. Luther translated the Bible into German, and, and Tyndall made it his work to translate the Bible into English. And there was a scene in the movie where uh, a friend is leaving his house and he's warning him, uh, my, my brother, the work you're doing is dangerous. There are people who are hunting for you. And he makes a statement. He says, simple, good, honest folks were burned at the stake for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Does that not trouble you? And Tyndall responded to him, they shall have a better resurrection. I've never forgotten that. They shall have a better resurrection. He says, don't you fear? He says, I fear him who can destroy my soul. He doesn't fear those who can destroy the body but can't touch the soul. He only fears God. Ultimately, they did destroy his body. He burned at the stake as a heretic. Interestingly, it was just a few years later that the king of England authorized the translation of the Bible into the English language. But Tyndall lost his life for that cause. But what was it? It was the assurance of a better resurrection that gives courage to saints, even though they may be fearful. We sang a moment ago that, uh, that he captures our fears and turns them to faith. You, can't, you cannot see what God is going to do. You can't see how glorious that better resurrection is. You can't see with your eyes that there is a glory so uh, amazing, so, uh, so glorious in heaven that it far outweighs present suffering. But by faith we believe it and we lay hold of it and our hearts are fortified by faith in the promise of God. The call of discipleship is that you and I are to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. And 
in most of our hearts, at one point or another, we ask, well, what if taking up my cross costs, costs me dearly? And the writer of Hebrews doesn't mince words. He essentially says it could. And in fact, it probably will. And fear continually asks, what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this goes wrong? What if that happens? And if you are prone to fear, the enemy is going to keep you plenty supplied with what ifs of every conceivable thing that could afflict you and go wrong. But the answer to every single what if is a better resurrection. He has given us something infinitely better. The way we overcome fear is by faith. In verses 36 and 37, we read other examples of suffering, persecution. Verse 36, uh, we read, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. And you say, where in the Bible do we read of somebody being sawn in two? We don't. But tradition's pretty strong that Isaiah was actually sawn in two. Now, that's not recorded in the Bible, but that's the tradition that's been handed down. And that's, I'm quite sure, or I, I'm guessing that's what Hebrews, author of Hebrews is referring to. But, but I want you to remember the words of Jesus. Because Jesus said in the Beatitudes, the very last Beatitude, he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then he turns from blessed are those to blessed are you. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In other words, you have a better resurrection. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see that? You are in a long line of the Hebrews 11, heroes of the faith if you endure. So rejoice. Be glad. That's impossible if we're trying to do it in our own strength with our own reasoning. But if we trust in the Lord with all our heart and don't lean on our own understanding and all our ways acknowledge Him, trust in Him, He will make that impossible response possible. We can rejoice. We can be glad. This is how the saints in the Old Testament were treated. They were, uh, particularly God's prophets, as they went and called rebellious Israel to, re to repent. Israel didn't want to repent. And so they would seek to quiet, silence the messengers of the Lord. And yet these men, and some women, faithfully persevered. They trusted God. They remained faithful to the calling to the very end. So, as these First century Jewish Christians read of these exploits of faith. They might be asking the question, why is my life so difficult? And the answer is right here. This story of Old Testament saints, some were stories of great triumph, but some were stories of endurance under great trials and suffering. Tom Schreiner in his commentary says, if the readers expect to be accepted and praised by the world. They need to rethink matters in light of the Old Testament. The people of God have always been a minority people, a pilgrim people, and often despised and forsaken. Christian, please hear me. This is a realistic assessment 
of the Christian life, and it is essential. If you expect the Christian life to be comfortable and easy and convenient and full of temporal blessings, it's likely at some point you will be disappointed and maybe even disillusioned. Because when hard things hit, it's like, well, that's not what was supposed to happen. Peter says, don't be surprised when you encounter trials of various kinds or when you encounter suffering. We, most of us enjoy very comfortable lives. I mean, let's be honest. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, and we have much of temporal blessing to be thankful for. But we see that there are saints all over the world who are suffering terribly, who live in danger, who live in deprivation, who live with all manner of difficulties and challenges. And their lives are lived out by faith in their Lord. And throughout the ages, we see that there are saints, heroes of the faith, who have suffered for their faith. These Old Testament saints, many of them suffered for their faith, and they endured it through faith. It's that hope of a better resurrection that sustained them in the midst of what felt like and what became physical death. There was a confidence God is faithful to his promises. That confidence enabled them and enables you and me to endure when we encounter whatever trials the Lord may bring our way. The very definition of faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. We don't see the fulfillment of God's promises, but we have strong reason to hope for them. We have solid basis. That word hope is not wishful thinking. It's, it's, it's staking your life on that which you know is to be true because God said so. It's a confident assurance. Faith is assurance of those things, that, he, that hope that he's placed in your heart. It's that, uh, that confident expectation of all that he's promised. One of the scourges of modern-day Christianity is what we call the prosperity gospel, a health-wealth gospel, the idea that if you just have enough faith, God is going to bless you. He's going to make you healthy. He's going to make you wealthy. He's going to make your life everything you want it to be. And if you don't think that's an insidious teaching, just see the havoc it's wreaking among believers in other countries, third-world countries, where the human likelihood of such prosperity is so very remote. But that prosperity gospel, it's, number one, it's wholly unbiblical, but number two, it caters to our flesh. It doesn't take great faith to want stuff. It doesn't take great faith to want to get better. It takes great faith to wait patiently on the Lord and trust his providences when you don't understand them, believing that he is up to something far greater than you could ever imagine. And setting your heart on promises that you may not even see fulfilled in this life. But that's okay. We read here that the world was not worthy of these saints. The the world rejected them. It despised them. It thought these men are are of no account. They persecuted them. They drove them out into caves and the deserts and wilderness. They, They expelled them from society. They considered them of no value whatsoever because of their faith and because of their faithfulness to God. That's what the world thought of them. What does the Lord think about them? His estimation was totally different, wasn't it? The world's not worthy of such men. Christian, hear me. 
You and I may encounter people who will despise us. There may be people who look at you and they ridicule the faith that you hold so precious. There's a cancel culture that would try to silence the convictions that, that we hold dear. And they would say, you are not worthy to be heard, to be accepted, to be a part of our society. And the Scripture says the world is not worthy of those who would hold to such ideas. These predominant voices, they might be intimidating. They might be powerful. They, they might make you feel insignificant, but our Lord says something totally different. The world is not, faith, is not worthy of those who will remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a huge message in that little phrase, isn't there? The world's not worthy of them. But as we read in the beginning of this text, we don't have time to tease all that out. But I, uh, I want you to take this to heart. There's great dignity for every child of the king. He is the king. And there's great dignity for every single child of the king who's trusting in the Lord Jesus. And we read, in fact, our third point is there is something better in store for us. Verse 39 and 40. All these Old Testament saints, though they're commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. These Old Testament saints were commended for their faith. Verse 2 says, by faith, men receive their commendation, and here we get it. We look forward to the day we will receive our commendation. When we hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. These Old Testament saints receive their commendation, and here it is in Hebrews 11. But what they received from the Lord was incomplete. The fullness of promises intended for them was not given to them yet. It is only together with us that these promises are fulfilled. Now, you might say, no, wait a minute. I thought the point was that God keeps his promises. Well, he does. But recognize that this life is not all there is. And this life is the warm-up to eternity. And the fulfillment of his promises goes on into eternity. And he is faithful to all of his promises to all of his people. But if we understand something of the Old Testament and what faith was like for them, they saw dimly. They looked forward to Messiah, but they didn't know his name and they didn't know what he would come to do. There was much of Christ they did not understand. They did not see the day of the Lord Jesus, and they did not experience the fullness of the blessings he came to give us. When Jesus says to his disciples, when I go away, I'm going to send to you my spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, we believe Old Testament saints are converted by the Holy Spirit, that we believe they're indwelt by the Spirit, just like New Testament saints. But the experience of the fullness of the Spirit was different. The Spirit would come upon a man or a woman for a particular time and a particular purpose. But the being filled with the Spirit and walking by the Spirit is a New Testament reality. They didn't receive the blessings, the fulfillment of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms in Christ until Christ came. Uh, Brooks in his commentary says, Jesus is the sum and the substance of all the divine promises. So until Christ came, all of those promises are yet anticipated. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, the Lord Jesus. 
So God has provided something better for, for us, his people, New Testament believers. So the life of the New Testament believer is much more excellent than that of the Old Testament believer. However wonderful it was for Abraham to speak to God as his friend, or for Moses to speak to God as his friend, the face-to-faceness, the privilege that you and I have to go boldly into the throne of grace is greater. However wonderful it was for a sacred assembly to gather in their synagogues or even the temple, you and I are members of the body of Christ, one another. We are the temple of the living God, and that's so much better. And all of the hope that we bear, all of the, 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 the promises that we are seeing fulfilled that the Old Testament saints could only look forward to and anticipate, we're finding them fulfilled in Christ. Yes, there's more to look forward to in heaven, no question about it. But there's much, there's a something better that is a present reality. In fact, it says, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And most of the commentators say that is referring to us right now, not just perfect in heaven, but complete. We're complete in Christ. Not that we are perfect in our uh, sanctification. That's a process that ends in heaven. But we are complete in Christ, and they were not. There's much we have that is so much better, so much more excellent, a better covenant, a better hope, a better access to a throne of grace, a better high priest. We know our Messiah by name. We know all of his redeeming work. We know the glory of his resurrection and the promise of his second coming. We have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in a way that the Old Testament saints apparently did not have. One author said, in fact, that this word perfection here refers to the totality of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Present forgiveness, cleansing of our sins, access to a storm of grace, as well as that future and final salvation and glory. One of my commentators that I enjoy is Simon Kistemaker, and he says that Hebrews 11, he calls it an art gallery of the Old Testament. It's like you go from picture to picture to picture to stories of these lives. Ordinary men and women who trusted God, they prayed, they worked, they depended or they trusted in the Lord. They overcame or they didn't. They suffered. They found God faithful in either way. And this is what Kistemaker says. He says, they were our prayer partners and our co-workers for God. Think about Abraham. Think about Moses. Think about Daniel. Think about David, your prayer partner and your fellow worker for God and his kingdom. But you and I have an advantage they don't have. We know something that they only could long to know. We're not so different from them except for in that one thing. They look forward to what you and I now have. They look forward to the Messiah who is promised. You and I know him. We know him by name. He is ours. And we are his bride. And he dwells among us and with us. Kistemaker says that the Old Testament saints they only had bits and pieces of this divine revelation, but we have the full revelation given to us of God in Jesus Christ. That's a glorious reality. But let me say this. Again, just, just repeat this. It's not always easy to trust God. Sometimes it's fearful. 
Gideon was afraid to trust God, even when the Lord spoke directly to him. Wait a minute, Lord, there's 132,000 Midianites lined up against us. And there's only 22,000 men that I can muster. And God says, well, yeah, I know, but we're going to get rid of most of those. And so he sends 12,000 home. You're like, oh, wait a minute, Lord. (laughs) There's only 10,000 of us against 122,000. And the Lord says, yeah, I know, that's too many. Uh, And he sends home 9,700 of them and leaves Gideon with 300. And I'm sure Gideon was like, well, what if, what if, what if? Are you sure? God provided all that was necessary for Gideon to trust in him. I don't recommend setting out fleeces, by the way. I do recommend believing when God has made promises. God had made clear, divine, special revelation promises to Gideon. The promises he makes to us in his word aren't that specific, but they're there and they're real. In the end, Gideon did trust the Lord, and God gave him a great victory to his honor, his glory, and his praise. And Christian, hear me. God may call you to difficult obedience. He may call you to do something that you feel like is utterly, utterly beyond your ability. You may feel like you're from a family of nobodies, and you're the nobodyest in your family. And the Lord says, I know those are the kind of people I like to use. Because I get the glory for using people who are weak to do mighty things. So don't be afraid to trust the Lord and to obey him. You may face challenges where you find that difficult, and you're faced really with two options. Number one, you can live by faith, you can walk by faith, and in time believe that you will see God's plan unfold faithfully, or you can choose to walk by sight. And you can live a stifled, unfruitful, stunted, mundane, fruitless Christian life. Take your pick. Walking by faith is the path to joy. Walking by sight is really just another word for spiritual blindness. I think the choice should be obvious. Finally, I want you to see these Old Testament saints were commended for their faith. For by faith, verse 2, the people of old received their commendation. And so are we. We look forward to the day our Lord will say, well done, good and faithful service. They're reassured in chapter 6, verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. It was in that context, he says, I want you to show the same earnestness to the very end, emulating the faith and patience of my saints. And hear me, even as Hebrews 11 makes no mention at all of the failures of these Old Testament saints. It holds them up as as if their faith had never, ever floundered. On that great day, we stand before the Lord clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we are well done, good and faithful servant. It will not simply be just as if we'd never sinned. It will be as if we had obeyed our Savior perfectly. I don't understand what the rewards for those things that we do for the Lord. I don't understand exactly how all that works, but even our rewards, even our, even our obedience and faithful service is tinged. It's in some senses affected by our own sinfulness, by our own selfish desires, our own motives. And yet God covers even that with the blood of our Savior and graciously receives it as if it were perfect service in his sight. And on that great final day when he receives us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he will 
reward us as if we had lived just as perfectly as our Lord Jesus did. Now, come and think about this for just a minute. Here's the deal. The Lord says to you, I want you to come, and I want you to ask. And I will give you, you have not because you asked not, I will give you what you need. I will provide you the strength to endure, to persevere. I will give you the wisdom. I will give you the resources. I delight to give you that which you need. I know what you need before you even ask, but I want you to ask. And sometimes he sets before us things that seem impossible. They seem beyond our ability. And he says, just ask me. Trust me. He invites us, and then he delights to answer those prayers. That doesn't mean that life suddenly becomes easy and effortless. It means it becomes possible. It enables us to endure even to the very end. He invites you to trust him. He graciously answers those prayers and provides for you. He graciously provides you the faith that you need to endure to the very end. And here's the amazing thing. As he enables you to persevere, as he does all of this, he commends you for your faith that he gave you. How could you not want to trust such a heavenly father? Some of you have the idea, <clears throat> have the idea that <clears throat> trusting God is, is not worth it. Trusting God means I don't get to do my own thing. Let me assure you, doing your own thing is not worth it. Doing your own thing goes in a bad direction. Not just it's wrong, but it is corrupt. And the corruption you'll reap, you'll never recover from. The Lord says, come, all you here weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He provides rest. He provides hope. He provides forgiveness of our sins. He provides a new heart and a new life. Won't you come to him? We're going to sing in a moment one of my favorite hymns, giving praise to the Lord. The word hallelujah means praise the Lord. And it's for all the saints who've gone before us and their exploits and their trust in the Lord. We praise God singing, hallelujah. Let's sing that from our hearts. Would you guys come?